At one point in episode 25, Jane and I were talking about keeping the plates spinning while drinking, and I said something to the effect that being an alcoholic requires you to be leading at least two lives, sometimes at the same time. That got me thinking about spies. You know, Paul McCartney wrote one of the greatest spy movie themes ever. When I first heard Live and Let Die, I was 10 or 11, I just thought it was the coolest song. You know, one of the advantages of having an early morning paper route is that you can sing and hum and no one really can hear you. I can remember singing this as I delivered papers in the dark. I don't think the Des Moines Register was necessarily requiring that level of commitment from their carriers, but I was ready. So, like I said, Paul McCartney wrote one of the great spy movie themes of all time. And then he wrote this. So what's all of us? There ain't nobody to spy I've always been obsessed with spies and espionage. I was a lonely, shy kid and spent a lot of time watching everyone else. I had a difficult time connecting with people and always felt very awkward. Consequently, I tried to be a really keen observer of other people. Why did they do the things they did? What were the appropriate reactions? I was a little like the young boy at the school, befriended by Jim Prideau in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. You're a good watcher, aren't you? You notice things. Like every good spy story, mine evolved from being simply a good watcher to realizing I had tracks to cover, secrets to keep. I'm not sure when thoughts like that began to creep into my consciousness, but I quickly determined that my success in life, my ability to make friends, connect with people, generally get along in the world, required me to keep an awful lot of stuff secret. I came to believe there was a part of me that was so shameful, humiliating, wrong, bad, defective, that it could simply never be shared with other people. I'm pretty sure that narrative was a big part of the reason I saw such a bright light when I started drinking at 15 or 16. The strain of carrying around all those secrets was already a lot. I'm sorry, don't get the idea that I drank because I liked the taste or just wanted to be popular at parties. By 17, I was sitting by myself at a bar in the afternoon. That's how deeply ingrained it was in me how deeply cut that groove already was. I needed to drink. That question had already been settled. I've told the story before about the night I realized I was an alcoholic. The sudden realization, of course while drinking alone, that drinking was way too important to me, occupied way too big a part of my life, was really already beyond my control. The icy churn in my gut came from knowing that I couldn't even conceive of a situation where I could or would stop drinking. Now, I had a real secret to keep. I was an actual teenage alcoholic. This was not a game to me. What was at stake was the most important thing in my life, my drinking. If I couldn't keep this secret, I'd lose it. And that simply couldn't happen. It was a huge secret to keep. And I did. I was a pretty fucking awesome spy. By my junior year of high school, I was a pretty ferocious everyday drinker and weed smoker. 
I also played basketball, had a part-time job after school at the local newspaper, and was the state debate champion. I think my debate coach was the only person who knew I was drinking, much less had any inkling how much. He walked past the scene of a beach party I had staged in my room at the Cedar Rapids Marriott and came to my very hungover breakfast table the next morning expressing concern, but suggesting that he knew it had probably been the work of older kids. That was another important piece of the puzzle for this budding spy. I realized that people really didn't want to believe I was an alcoholic or had a problem. That was very, very useful knowledge and helped me keep drinking for the next four decades. I managed a pretty successful career, raised a family, had what looked like a pretty idyllic life, and no one really suspected anything until it all finally blew up in 2011. My alcoholism came as a complete surprise to almost everyone. That's how well disguised it was. Well, I knew it was coming. I had known since that night at Magoo's in 1981. I knew there would be a day of catastrophe when everything finally got discovered. I just didn't know when that was going to be. I'm fascinated by the story of how the British and Americans ultimately broke the German and Soviet codes in World War II. I think about Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five, who reached the highest levels of British society and the intelligence establishment, all while spying for the Soviets. Philby, who had risen to actually head counterintelligence for MI6, had to know the Americans were steadily decrypting all of the intercepted Soviet communications from the 1940s, and that there was inevitably going to be a day when he would finally and inexorably be exposed as a traitor. Back when I was 17, I listened to the Beatles a lot. I loved the medley on the B side of Abbey Road, but I used to think it was kind of weird that the words that resonated with this 17-year-old were from Golden Slumber. Once I didn't understand why those words always hit me so hard until I read about Kim Philby. Then I completely understood the feeling of being incrementally crushed a little every day by the knowledge of the impending catastrophic discovery. thing that really struck me was the story of how the British, aided by the ultra-decrypts, intercepted almost all of the German spies sent during the war, and then doubled them back to provide false intelligence to the Nazis. The British literally hired an army of writers to concoct the backstories and fake intelligence, and they managed to keep the Germans thinking they had an intact ring of spies for most of the war. I thought that was brilliant and I took careful note. I started trying to get sober in 2010 and quickly realized I wasn't interested in actually giving up drinking. It occurred to me that most of my problems came from people knowing that I was drinking. If I could just do a better job of hiding it, well, that would be way better than having to give it up. For the next 10 years, my life was a mix of actual attempts to get sober interspersed with fictional periods of sobriety. 
It was a horrifying wilderness of mirrors way to live. I'm not sure I knew myself when I was trying and when I was pretending. I dated someone for 18 months during that time and pretended to be sober the entire time. I drank almost every day. And even though she lived only three blocks from my house, she walked my dog. We saw each other every day. Well, she had no idea until the very end that I was drinking. When she broke up with me, she asked if I'd been drunk on the night of our first date. That first date where I told her I was a recovering alcoholic and had been sober for a while. Yeah, I had been. I fooled everyone. Friends, wives, colleagues, bosses, my kids. Everyone. And for a long, long time. That doesn't really generate any feelings of pride in my tradecraft. Like CIA agents working in Moscow, I needed to generate time in the black to do my drinking. Since my drinking occupied several hours a day, every day, it became necessary to generate an entire fictional life to cover over the fact that my real life was mostly spent on a collection of carefully located and concealed bar stools. I told my girlfriend I was seeing friends, going to church, going to a meeting, going to a game, whatever lie was necessary to generate an hour or two where I could peacefully drink without fear of being discovered. I was exactly like the British writers conjuring up lives of actually imprisoned spies. There's always a whiff of romance and intrigue and elegance in spy movies, but that's a fantasy. The actual life of a spy is small and dark and lonely and limbed with fear. I lived that way for 40 years and did it in service to what I thought was my most important strategic interest, my drinking. That's not a pleasant realization. Kim Philby drank away the last years of his life in Moscow, and though he had the order of Lenin pinned to his jacket, I'll bet he also realized he'd given his entire life in the service of a monstrous lie. When my very elaborately conceived deception operation finally collapsed, I realized the secret I had been protecting almost my entire life was the thing actually destroying it. Spies Like Us was a terrible movie, and Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase were horrible at even acting like spies. And I wish I'd been more like them. I wish I'd been a shittier spy, a less accomplished liar, a little less skilled at sowing doubt and confusion. I wish I hadn't made people believe me so much. I wish I'd been hapless and bungling and hadn't been able to keep my stories straight. That would have saved a lot of people a lot of heartache. I look back on big chunks of my life and wonder whether it was really ever me or was it all just an operation? Was it all just a cover I was building? Those questions are sort of academic at this point. Well, that water is well past the bridge. The adult version of me takes complete responsibility for the decision to live my life like a spy. The choice I thought I made to conceal and protect what was most important to me, drinking. I've never really told that part of my story before and revisiting that young secret agent really stirred up a lot in me. I usually speak very matter-of-factly about the origin story of my alcoholism. If I qualify at a meeting, I typically just say that I started drinking at 15 or 16 and was a white light drinker. That's my pet phrase. 
Dr. Rue Fox, who wrote an amazing book in 1955 titled simply, Alcoholism, Its Scope, Cause, and Treatment, describes someone like me as a primary addict. Quote, the primary addict from his first introduction to beverage alcohol uses it as an aid to adjust to his environment. And then she goes on to describe me a, a little more thoroughly. The primary addict is one in whom the predisposing traits are so developed and so sharply marked that his first recourse to this socially approved narcotic is only a matter of time. In the case of the primary addict, the decisive symptom, loss of control, appears early in his drinking history. Thereafter, his own sense of self-esteem, depreciated to begin with, will take a merciless pounding. If he thought he was unworthy before, now he is given proof. The process of recruiting agents, assets, usually involves identifying and exploiting vulnerabilities. It's not a very pretty or kind process, and it usually involves luring someone to cross a line that they may not even know is there. That's pretty much how alcohol worked on me. Once that line is crossed and the subject realizes they're now complicit, how much they now have to choose, well, that's when the trap closes and no one has too much of a choice after that. That's pretty much how alcohol worked with me. Choice is the funny word. People often like to describe addicts and alcoholics as people who make, quote, bad choices. And for sure we do, lots and lots of them. But I'm coming to see those choices as symptoms of my addiction, not the cause of it. Sure, I made that choice to drink that first drink, take that first hit of weed way back in 1977 or 1978. I had no real idea back then that choice meant enlisting in a lifetime of deception in service of a terrible secret. I only knew that from the time I first started drinking, it was something that was necessary for me, not something I did for fun. Drinking for me was kind of how I imagined eating without taste buds would be. It's just something I had to have. I was convinced I couldn't navigate the world without it. The big book talks about alcoholics reaching the point of no return. For me, that happened frighteningly early. I had no idea there was even a line to be crossed. The horrible thing is, I think, even if someone blessed with foreknowledge of all the pain and struggle and heartbreak that was waiting in front of me had been sitting in that awful black vinyl booth with me at Magoo's that night back in 1981, I think I would have still had that third drink. I see now I never had a choice. I did what I thought was necessary, and once I crossed that invisible line, well, it became an imperative. Already weighed down with the crushing shame and fear of being an alcoholic, that 17-year-old didn't make a choice, didn't really have a choice. He just knew he had to keep the secret. It turns out, the secret wasn't so terrible, and it wasn't much of a secret by the end. What was terrible was living that way for 40 years. It's heartbreaking to look back. The sadness is for someone who took on the burden of an overwhelming secret way too early. Keeping that secret for so long cost him a lot and was a very, very lonely business. 
I know him pretty well. He never meant to hurt anyone. And that's still the hardest thing he carries around. He just knew he didn't fit in the world as is, and he did the best he could. I have a ton of respect for him. He took on that pretty heavy burden, and he carried it for a long, long time. He was resourceful. He never quit. He was so brave. And despite it all, all of the failures to come, the losses, the relapses, everything, I realize now he never gave up believing there was a way back home. Espionage is a capital crime, and that's why in real life, being discovered as a spy is typically a pretty unfortunate thing. Me, finally being discovered as a spy? I think the end of my career as a spy is probably when my life actually began again. And here's something that kind of cracks me up. Like everything else, it turns out the answer was right in front of me the whole time. If I had just listened to the next track on the album, maybe I'd have gotten it right. Thanks for letting me share. And in the